0: today on At News Daily.
1: What I'm trying to convey, um, particularly to these
2: women in agriculture, is that their voice matters too. It is the real deal. People think it's fake. You know, you film for six hours and then they put you in a camper and give you a cup of coffee and a donut. No.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. We are coming to you live from the Sheraton Hotel (laughs) in West Des Moines. This is Mike Pearson, joined here by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, what are we doing in West Des Moines?
3: Well, Mike, we're at the Farm Her First Annual Conference in West Des Moines, as we've been announcing on the podcast in the last couple of days. And there's 150 women here from uh, about 20 states, and you are one of two men I've seen at the conference.
0: Yes, yes, it is myself and uh, Jason Meeker from Successful Farming. Mm-hmm. We are we are here. We are carrying the banner of masculinity, <laughs> waving it high. But so, as a woman in agriculture, Delaney, what? What has jumped out at you from this conference so far?
3: I just think the empowerment factor at this conference is high or prevalent, whatever you want to say. Just the fact that so many women are involved in agriculture and in their operations, but a lot of times we get placed on the back burner. We're known as nurturers and wives and mothers, but not necessarily as, you know, the majority owner of a farm or a business.
0: Yeah, not always as a decision maker. Right. Yeah, in a decision lot of ways. Maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know I can tell you as somebody who's been to a lot of conferences that are predominantly populated with dudes, um, <laughs> I, and you saw this. I, we went in for lunch and walked into a room with a hundred and fifty some women eating lunch, talking, and it was. I I kind of had to stop and collect myself yeah. before going in. There's a definite sense of. Um, being an outsider, which I don't find very often at ag events, but it made me kind of reflect on, at all those events that are populated by dudes, there's always a few women.
3: That's how we feel when we go to events like exactly. that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it
0: was eye-opening like for me in that regard, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And uh, had some had some great speakers this morning. I had a chance to listen in on a few. You had a chance to listen in on a few, and we'll be sharing those interviews today and tomorrow and uh, just generally trying to help you, the listener, feel like you were able to participate because this con- uh, conference sold out, gosh, like two months ago, I think Margie said.
3: Yeah, I don't remember the exact day, but it was. It seems like it was pretty, pretty long ago that it did sell out.
0: Yeah, you know, people, uh, there is a hankering for this kind of information in this
3: kind of environment.
0: Yes, a hankering. They're hmm. hankering for it.
3: You still on some drugs today, Mike? I am still on
0: it lot of ibuprofen. Yes, I almost used a different word for a lot, but I caught myself. Good. We would have lost our clean rate. Good,
3: good, yeah.
0: All of that being said, Delaney, the folks <laughs> tuning in probably have a hankering for some news in the world of agriculture. What have you found so far? What's jumping out at you?
3: Well, today is another slow news day. This week before the 4th of July, I guess there's not a lot going on in the world of news so far, but I think today or later this week, oh, Friday, okay, uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, is traveling to China to meet up with the ambassador of China, Terry Branstad, who was formerly Iowa's governor. And the two are going to formally mark the return of U.S. beef to the China market after 13 years, and we reported a few weeks ago about that shipment of boxed beef that was shipped by Greater O, and they will be enjoying that beef at their dinner on Friday.
0: That's going to be delicious beef. They are going to be very satisfied, I Mm -hmm. would imagine. You can't go wrong with uh, wonderful corn-fed beef. Well, let's see. So, I guess, you know, while we're talking about uh, the the world of international things, trades and whatnot, there is more news, Delaney, coming out of Brazil. I know. There was an announcement made earlier this week. In fact, it was uh, made this morning that President Michel Temer in Brazil is being officially charged with taking bribes. Um, he is being charged with taking a multimillion dollars worth of bribes. And uh, actually a fair amount of that coming from JBS. The way this works in Brazil is kind of similar like in the US. So the prosecutor presents charges uh, basically like we would for impeachment and then in their case the lower house of Congress must vote on whether or not to try the leader. And in this case of the 531 seats Michelle's party believes they have between 250 and 300 votes to not have a trial. But we probably haven't seen the final shoe drop. Uh, Prosecutors are expected to make additional charges including racketeering and obstruction of justice and all of those charges will have to be voted on by the lower house of Congress so there is uh, probably likely that at one point, whether it's this charge or any of these others, that uh, he will end up having to face a trial. Mm. So this is going to be ongoing. This is exactly, almost exactly, what uh, his predecessor, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached for just about a year ago. Now we're right back into the same thing. And in the document released yesterday, Tamer arranged, allegedly, to receive a total of eleven and a half million dollars from JBS in just nine months, and uh, I don't believe JBS is the only business to have allegedly bribed the uh, the former president. Uh, and just an interesting update. And I didn't mean to laugh, Brazilian listeners. I apologize. I know this is troubling for you guys as well. But uh, so now we've got Michel Temer being charged. One third of his cabinet. Four former presidents of Brazil and dozens of lawmakers are either under investigation or have already been charged, and over 90 people have already been convicted of graft and bribery in Brazil.
3: Oh my goodness. So,
0: this continues to push forward, but I've got to wonder, if after all of this, maybe they'll begin to to have a clean slate and could have cleaner politics. I mean it really seems like they are trying to clean house down.
3: Wasn't there. that the thought though after the last president was impeached?
0: It was, but they didn't do this kind of right. an investigation and and prosecution.
3: Who's um, putting the investigation on? That's my question. So
0: it yeah, that's a it's a very good question. Um it's it's these federal prosecutors. uh Rodrigo Janot, or Genna Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, Rodrigo, how you pronounce your last name, and I apologize, but um, yeah, he he submitted the charge yesterday to the Supreme Court and said that Michel Temer fooled the Brazilian citizens and owed the nation millions in compensation for accepting bribes.
3: All so right.
0: We'll keep track of this. Eleven million dollars. Yes. Eleven million. In nine months, that's not bad work if you can get it.
3: <laughs> I guess not. But it might
0: not buy your way out of jail.
3: Well, probably not there. <laughs>
0: Oh, so what else do you have in the world of Ag News?
3: (laughs) Bringing it back within the borders here in the Senate, a a bipartisan Agriculture Equipment and Machinery Depreciation Act is on the on the floor now, and this new act would allow farmers to purchase new equipment and replace worn-out machinery by amending the U.S. tax code. And as we're going to hear from Amanda DeYoung later. Tax amendments are a big part of President Trump's top three things, really, in policy that he wants to attack. So with this proposed act, uh, the tax code would be be set permanently at a five-year depreciation schedule as opposed to the seven-year depreciation schedule, which we are now under.
0: Well, you know what they say, Delaney? Death and taxes are the only two things you can't escape. But anything (laughs) that can... uh, can help us reduce that tax burden for agriculture that's uh it's always celebrated Mm -hmm. well as long as we're talking inside the border and we're talking about saving people money there was a report from reuters and it makes a lot of sense but economists are figuring that cheaper gasoline prices which you and i have talked about which pretty much all of our listeners i would imagine have seen at the pump here over the past couple months uh should spur at least a limited amount of gasoline consumption over the summer, this has been a very slow start to the, uh, the summer driving season, but if we can get the volume of traffic up and uh, you know, people are buying a lot more pickups nowadays, we could start to consume a lot of gasoline, which is good news for corn growers, at least who listen, because pretty much all gasoline sold in this country is sold with a 10% ethanol blend. Mm-hmm. So the more gas we use, the more ethanol we're using. And uh, that always helps us when we've got projected 2.1 billion bushels of uh, corn carry out coming at us.
3: Yeah, and we do talk to Amanda DeYoung about ethanol and renewable fuels a little bit later in the podcast, so be sure to stay tuned about that.
0: You betcha. So, have any other news for us?
3: The only other thing I wanted to mention as is that the USDA's FSA or Farm Service Agency is reminding producers to make sure and go ahead and file those acreage reports before the 2017 crop deadline which is Monday, July 17th. Make sure if you filed or filed for crop insurance that you get that number in there, otherwise you might be slapped a late fee.
0: That's right. And while we're talking about saving money, we don't want to get charged with late fees. That's Nobody right. loves doing Mm-mm. that. Um, I just have one other piece of news. So this came out of Washington, D.C. A couple weeks ago, uh, Administrator EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt announced that the his EPA was not going to finalize the proposed rule to end chlorpyrphyros. Is that close? Chlorpiphyros. <laughs>
3: Chlorpyr.
0: Chlorpiphyros. <cl-por-furious. laughs> Chlorpiphyros. I apologize, agronomist. Chlorpiphyros. Chlorpiphyros.
3: Chlorpiphyros? Chlorpiphyros.
0: Yeah, Chlor-p-p-furos. that sounds right, actually. No. Close. <laughs> So the EPA under Obama, had said they were going to ban the use of that chemical on food crops, but uh, Scott Pruitt said he was not going to. So today, the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with the Environmental Working Group, accused the EPA in a letter of ignoring its own findings and... uh, basically endangering children, infants, and developing fetuses. Scott Pruitt came out and said no, this has been based on, uh, just like every other decision, he said, quote, it was based on meaningful data, meaningful science, and it was a decision that we felt was merited based upon that and a collection of information we consider. So I did just a little search, and there's a million different groups out there that represent so on and so forth, so I wanted to get a background on the American Academy of Pediatrics. Working with the Environmental Working Group, is there an ideological background there that we're not aware of? I don't know, but I do know they cut ties with Monsanto just a few years ago over glyphosate. Mm-hmm. So take that for uh, for what it's worth, I suppose. They allege that uh, symptoms in people acutely overexposed to chlorpyrifos can range from runny noses and drooling to nausea, vomiting, headaches, muscle cramps, and loss of coordination. And severe poisoning can cause unconsciousness, convulsions, paralysis, and death is what they wrote in their letter today. So you know, more uh, more jibber-jabber mm-hmm. out there in the world DC.
3: Yeah, got to cut through that clutter.
0: That's right. We help you cut through the clutter here on Ag News <laughs> Daily.
3: All right, Mike. Well, why don't you read us today's closing market prices because we have a couple of good interviews today. to present. That's right.
0: I would love to read these markets because we have got some green on the screen in the world of grains. In corn, the July contract up a quarter of a cent. Hey, it's moved to the upside. Closed the day at three fifty nine and a quarter. December corn up half a penny. Finished at $3. And a half. In soybeans, the July old crop beans rose four and a half cents to finish at nine eleven and a quarter. November beans up three and three quarters to close the day at nine seventeen and a half. In wheat, Chicago wheat the July contract up 3 and a quarter. Finished the day at 473 and a quarter. December contract also up 3 and a quarter, closed at 491 and 1 quarter. In meats, we talked yesterday with Jim Burns, and he mentioned there could be a turnaround Tuesday after yesterday's limit up gains in cattle. That happened. Luckily, didn't quite go limit. Now, the August live cattle contract did drop three dollars twenty five cents to close at one fifteen twenty five. October live cattle down two dollars fifty closed at one twelve seventy seven and a half. In feeder cattle, the August contract declined four dollars fifty seven and a half cents, finished at one forty four eighty seven and a half. September feeders down four thirty. 7.5, closed the day at one forty-four fifty-two and a half. Lean hogs not as big up yesterday, not as big down today. The July contract dropped fifty-five cents, closed at eighty-six forty-seven and a half. August lean hogs down twelve and a half, closed at seventy-eight fifty-five even. Looking at the world of milk, July class three milk futures dropped two cents. Closed at 15.87. The August deferred contract dropped 10 cents. Closed the day at 16.67. All right, Delaney. Who are we going to be talking to first today?
3: Today we are talking to two different guests. But the first one is Amanda DeYoung. As I mentioned earlier, she is a senior policy advisor for the Iowa Corn Growers Association, and we're going to talk to her a little bit about what's going on in the world of Washington, but more specifically, what you can do to get involved on the local front.
0: all right we're still here at the farm her conference in des moines and right now we're going to talk to amanda DeYoung. young and amanda you are the policy director what's your title at iowa corn
1: i'm senior policy advisor at
0: iowa Corn. senior policy advisor now while you're here today you're talking about how folks can interact or engage with their uh, legislators with their town council folks whoever it is that farmers need to have a voice with What's the the main point you want to make while you're here at the Farber Conference?
1: What I'm trying to convey, um, particularly to these women in agriculture, is that their voice matters too, and that um, they are constituents of of members of Congress, they're leaders in their local communities, um, and in their states, frankly, and they have a great story to tell. Uh, They have a great, uh, compelling story to tell, and that they should take every opportunity to... Um, be engaged have their voice heard because they're professionals, they're business owners, uh, and they have um, their their voice is just as important as anyone else's Uh, they need to be telling the story of agriculture.
3: So with your role now at Iowa Corn, is that the biggest thing that you instill in farmers too is teaching them to share their story with legislators? Uh, Absolutely, Uh,
1: to make that relationship uh, to, to create a bond, to create a relationship from the outside is important. That's how you get remembered. That's how your story gets remembered. Making it personal. um, Just like in regular conversation with someone that you meet at the coffee shop or someone that you meet um, on an airplane is telling that personal story. It strikes their uh, interest, it gets their attention. And then when you have a need or you have an issue that's important to you, um, you can convey that message better. The why is an easier thing to talk about once they know your background.
0: Now, during your presentation, because I had I got to listen in on you this morning, you had an incredible number of statistics. One of them really, st- one of them really stuck out to me, and uh, I'm still on a lot of ibuprofen <laughs> with this ear infection. And um, the the one that struck out at me was the fact that there are 34 districts between the House House and Senate. Right.
1: Well, these are 34 House districts, House districts. Right. right. 451.
0: Thirty-four out of four hundred and fifty-one are fifty percent or more rural. Is that right? That's correct. That's shocking. That is, I mean, from somebody in Ag in a rural—I think my district counts as rural—Rod Blum's. Uh,
1: absolutely, yeah. All okay. the Iowa districts would be considered mostly okay.
0: rural. Okay. What does that mean going forward for agriculture?
1: I mean, what that so what we're dealing with is a census um, that is driving uh, more and more districts. Um, our constitution only allows so many congressional districts. And so our, our census is moving, is showing that people are moving from rural America. And frankly, that means districts are getting larger. Um, states are having less members um, of the house. Iowa is a perfect example. You don't have to go back uh, very far mm-hmm. to remember uh, when we had five uh, congressional districts. Now we have four. Uh, we've had more historically than even that. And so states like Florida are growing. like Iowa are shrinking uh, when it comes to our congressional districts and so it's even more important frankly that agriculture tells our story not just to our own members of Congress but to the entire country because every single person eats food is personal and uh, it's private and a decision that families make every single day when they go to a grocery store whether it's a major um major grocery store or corner market in new york city and so we have a story to tell and we need to be out there telling it to every single person that will listen
3: amanda you spent i don't remember how many years seven years is that what you said lobbying in congress
1: um yeah no i I worked in congress um and worked um, for usda and in washington dc i'm sorry you probably had a question
3: (laughs) (laughs) no no that's okay i was just gonna say so while you were working um lobbying in dc what was the general feedback that you received from most politicians Were most of them removed from the farm and didn't understand your message or how did you convey agriculture's message?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly our, the number of people involved in agriculture, farming, ranching, et cetera, in Congress is, is very low. I think in that same um, slide I talked about, uh, I think, 29 people claim agriculture mm-hmm. as their profession. Um, out of 641, because you've got 100 senators, 451 districts and territories, uh, yeah, congressional districts and territories. And so such a small percentage of people actually working in agriculture who go on to Congress, they are dealing with hundreds of issues every week. And so we have to take the opportunity to educate them. That can be through a simple meeting or a conversation. That can be after hosting them on your farm. Um, but we can't expect them. We can't expect doctors to un- automatically understand what we do as farmers, uh, just like they couldn't expect the reverse. And so we need to take the opportunity. People are willing to listen, people are definitely willing to learn. Um, if you go and you have a positive message to tell, um, we can be very drowned out sometimes by, r- right now, especially with protests, with anger, with yelling. Uh, that's not an effective way to communicate with anyone, legislator or or neighbor. And so, uh, one of the things that we try to convey to people is if you are respectful, even if you disagree, if you're respectful and you have a positive message to tell, people will listen.
0: All right. Thank you, Amanda, for taking the time to talk to us. And, folks, we will have more conversation with Amanda on Friday as we look at the policies that could happen during this uh, election, well, post election year. But Delaney, that's not all we're talking to today. Who are we talking to next?
3: This one I'm really excited to present. Holly Hoffman was on the CBS show Survivor, which is kind of like Naked and Afraid for those of you that watch it now. A little bit different, and she'll explain that in her interview. But she's also a rancher from South Dakota, didn't grow up in agriculture, and really just talks about her story, about how her, goal, her uh, journey with Survivor and being a rancher kind of intertwined. Okay, folks, I am really excited to present Holly Hoffman. She was a CBS Survivor finalist, for those of you that watch the show, and she's also a rancher from South Dakota. Holly, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. I am so honored to be here, thank you.
0: So, Holly, now we've got a lot of folks that like the cattle business, that listen to our podcast. Tell me a little bit about the ranching operation. Where where in South Dakota, and what do you guys raise?
2: Well, actually, we are in North Central South Dakota, And we used to have black Angus cattle. My husband ran for politics, and of course then he won. So during the winter months, January, February, March, he had to be at the state capitol for session and so forth. So I remember him asking me if I can feed cattle, 600 head of cattle in the winter, and I'm like, "Uh, what? So our hired man retired, so we decided to sell our cattle. Okay. And now we rent all of our pasture, but plus we put up hay. Now I grew up in town. So when I married my husband and I moved out to the farm, I had a lot to learn, which I did. Um, working cattle, we used to also have a, a cow-calf operation, and working cattle, I didn't know that cattle could have that many names. I was actually <laughs> shocked.
0: Were uh, a lot of them four letters? Yes,
2: yes, a lot, so I was truly surprised. <laughs> yeah. But oh yes, we do cut hay, and I, I've, since then, I've, I've learned how to cut hay. I do most of the cutting, he does most of the bailing. Oh, believe me, I've had some experiences, but mm-hmm. you know what, it's, it's all about learning and taking the opportunities and, and doing those things.
3: And so you applied for the CBS Survivor show in what year was
2: it? Actually, I, I applied in 2009. Okay. And it took me a year to get on, okay. which is actually, that's fast. We had one lady in our season that applied 17 times before she got a call back. The hardest thing about this show, well, besides the starvation, if you go play it, is getting on it. Um, The second season of Survivor, there were over 300 people that applied. Our season, there were over 100,000. So just getting on or getting a call back is, is something. But yes, I did apply. All of our children were off to college. Um, A lot of my girlfriends were like, you know, Holly, just think about this. I think you're going through menopause. You know, just slow down. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'll never get on anyway. I'll just send in the application. And wouldn't you know what? They called me back.
0: So were you just a fan of the show and thought, "Ah, I could do that?
2: I was. And I was watching Survivor Samoa, and I was sitting at the kitchen counter, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to send in an application and just see what happens. (laughs) My, My audition tape was not very good. And they called me back, and I was shocked. And they flew me out to LA for a casting call. And when I got that final call, I I absolutely couldn't believe it. And I almost backed out the day before I was supposed to go. I was like, I was telling my family, my friends, I'm not doing this. There's, I can't do this. And then of course they're like, well then why did you apply in the first place? You know, (laughs) one of those things. But sometimes in life, the hardest things that we do are the most rewarding. And the first step about doing those hard things is stepping out of your comfort zone and doing them. So that's, that's what I would have to say about the whole experience because I was, did not do a lot of traveling. I, the first flight to Los Angeles to my casting call was the first time I was on an airplane by myself. Oh, wow. I was married very young. Um, now I've been to 30 states speaking. I'm with five speaking bureaus. <sighs> I'm doing podcasts, you know, I'm, <laughs> so yeah. Sometimes, like I said, it it broadens your horizon. Yeah, wow.
3: yeah. And so you were on Survivor for 39 days. Wow. Is that right?
2: Well, my whole story is, um, I wanted to quit on day five. I was crying on <laughs> national television in my presentation today. I will show a little clip. Jimmy Johnson, the former NFL football coach of the Dallas Cowboys, was on my season and he basically gave me a pep talk and said, you know what, you can't quit, we need you, you know, which shows a lot of character for for Coach Johnson because your goal is to vote people off. Right. And here he's encouraged me, encouraging me to stay, which was also a lesson. Well, I stayed and I changed my attitude. I had to start believing in myself. I mean, you have nothing. You don't have a phone, a, uh, a computer you have the clothes on your back a swimsuit a water bottle and a bag that's it i didn't brush my teeth the whole time i didn't take a shower i wore the same clothes it is the real deal people think it's fake you know you film for six hours and then they put you in a camper and give you a cup of coffee and a donut no, it's the real deal.
0: And where were you your year in survival?
2: Nicaragua. Oh. Yeah. So, and it was very during, different
0: climate than South Dakota. Very different
2: climate. Plus, it was the rainy season. Oh. So, first 17 nights, pouring, pouring absolute rain. It was just horrible. But I ended up, I, I kept going and I made it to Final Four. Um, I was the last woman in the game. And uh, the gentleman voted me off on day 38. Mm-hmm. So I was what I say in my presentation is I wasn't one day short, I was 38 days long. Yeah. Because you have to make it 39 and I was right. voted off on day 38. So it you know what the the thing is it's not always about winning. It's about what you learn from the experience. And that's that's what I came out of the game with. Um a little more self-confidence, a little more independence and and believing that I can instead of telling myself I can't.
3: Do you think after marrying your husband and then working on a ranch, do you think you took some of those skills with you when you were in when you were in the Survivor game? Oh, absolutely! Because ranching is is also you have to fight the elements.
2: Um, you have to be very adaptable to every situation. You don't know if it's going to rain that day. You don't know if you're going to have a great crop. You don't know um, when you're calving what's going to happen. So forth. so. I did, I truly believe that being in the outdoors and and being on a ranch, it strengthened my ability to say, I can do this. Uh, the, the thing was, I always had my husband or our hired man uh, beside me. So this was just another step for me when I was on Survivor bringing the experience from the ranch, but also saying, I have to do this one on my own. So putting both of them together was was the true survival Mm -hmm. skills, because we all know that life can truly be a jungle. And every day we can be living in a jungle, but how do we adapt to the jungle? How do we inspire others? How do we inspire ourselves?
3: Your message really seems to align with what Margie has presented so often in FarmHer about empowering women and that women are strong and tough enough to take on these lead roles in farms. Is that what your message is going to be later it, today? It
2: truly is. It truly is. Um, I always felt like I had to have someone hold my hand and that's just came from also I will bring in my childhood into my presentation and that I, I, I truly lived my life behind a closed door and that was from my childhood. I grew up in an abusive family. My father was abusive and I always lived with a big chip on my shoulder and behind a door thinking that I, I not having a lot of confidence in myself. And truly what the jungle did for me is it made me realize that you can't hide behind a closed door. So as women, I also think that um, we sometimes feel like we're in the shadow of the hired man or our husband being on a farm when we're really, we're not because we are just as important running the operations and being out there and working and so forth. When my husband and I got married right away, I didn't have a lot to do on the ranch because we had three children and so forth. And then as our children grew, I started working cattle. I started, you know, being in the tractor and so forth. And it made me, it gave me a, a sense of um, responsibility and saying, you know what, I can do this. And the fact that we as women, we need to take time for ourselves. You know, we are by nature, we're nurturers, and a lot of times we put ourselves at the end of the line when in all actuality, we need to put ourselves at the front of the line because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. We can't help with the operation. So that's gonna also be in my story as well, that we as women, we need to put ourselves first and that's extremely important.
0: And don't feel guilty about it. And
2: don't feel guilty because I talk about guilt in my presentation. Um, That's one of the reasons I wanted to quit. I was out there and I was like, oh my gosh, I was so guilty because I left my family to be in a jungle, you know, (laughs) And, and then I'm like, you know what? I got back and my family was more, they appreciated me more. I got more thank yous, I got more hugs and so it's okay to to step away from your children and your family for a while and take time for yourself.
0: And now here you are in central Iowa, and we need to let you go because yeah. you're gonna go from a ranch in South Dakota to the jungle to the stage in front of 150 farmer know. women. Thank you, Holly. Thank for taking you the time so
3: to much. Thank you. Again, a big thank you to Holly. I, I uh, am already a big fan of her. She's just so energetic. She's empowering she had a lot to share with me before the interview and said that going on Survivor was way out of her comfort zone, you know, she said uh, she was struggling with weight loss and just going on the show gave her the confidence and power to do all sorts of things and I think that message really resonates or is going to resonate with the women here at this conference today, because that's what Farm Her is really all about.
0: Yeah, and you know, she mentioned she's traveled around the country, you know, after mm-hmm. being in Nicaragua on uh, Survivor, then she's, she was in Connecticut last week, she was in Montana, she's just really everywhere. And to have that kind of energy, after traveling so much, is really impressive. That, she is a neat, neat woman, fantastic speaker here at the Farmher Conference. And uh, we will bring you more highlights from the conference tomorrow, won't we, Elaine?
3: We will, we'll be here again tomorrow. Hopefully gonna talk to Dee Dee Chadwick from Nationwide talking about succession planning, which is not a great topic that a lot of people wanna talk about, but it's one that needs to be talked about if you own a farm or a business and you don't have a plan yet for who is gonna take over if something were to happen. Uh, it's really important and she's going to talk to us about that and we'll bring you interviews from other women at the farm her conference
0: so stay tuned tomorrow in the meantime check us out on Facebook and on Twitter tell us what you'd like to hear and be sure to find us on our website at agnewsdaily.com and subscribe to us on iTunes be sure to rate and review us we do encourage that and uh, we'll make sure to give you a big old shout out we're We are not above being bought. (laughs) So with all of that, folks, and Delaney, should we let the people go?
3: Let's let them go.